Well, if you would please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. And in a moment we will read uh, just a few verses to set our time this morning as we come to do a, uh, just a, a recap, a summary, a review of the book of Daniel, some major lessons learned to consider some takeaways, maybe to fine tune some points of understanding and to, uh, to make sure that we, have, uh, that we have grasped and that we have uh, taken away what we need to take away from this book. Uh, as you're turning there, I just want to mention that we will soon begin another book, uh, which is going to be the Gospel according to Luke. And if you want to prepare for that, uh, you can certainly begin to do that. Uh, in preparation for that, there is just there are a few things that um, some of you may be interested in. These are various types of uh, scripture study or note-taking notebooks that are just for the Gospel of Luke. Uh, there are a few of these in different translations of the Bible that are out on the table as you go out. If you're so inclined to have a single book dedicated to your notes or your studies for those things, whether you use that to take notes during the sermon or sort of fill those in at home, however you want to do that, feel free to pick one of those up. There are a number in the New American Standard 95 edition, the New King James and the ESV. So just feel free to grab one of those on the blue table on the way out uh, if you think that you might use one of those as we go through that. So that will be coming very soon. For this morning, we're going to read the end of chapter 1 about Daniel and his friends to set the scene, and then we will go through and uh, review the major overview of the book and some takeaways. So if you would follow along as I read, starting in verse 17 talking about Daniel and his three uh, faithful, uncompromising companions among the Jewish youth who had been taken into exile in Babylon. It says, As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence and every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued... Until the first year of Cyrus the king. We're going to uh, review this book to make sure that we understand and don't forget the things that we have learned. Uh, there are some things that we can benefit from going through the big picture. I hope that you'll see that as we go through. Uh, we want to look at this largely from the perspective of the major outline and structure of the book. And if you've been with us for the book of Daniel, you know that the book largely falls in terms of literary style into two main halves of the book. Uh, the first half of the book has a number of historical accounts about stories that took place in the life of Daniel and his friends. So chapter 1 through 6 is largely narrative. It is focused on events that took place historically. Uh, chapter 7 through 12 consists of four different visions. Visions that were given uh, to Daniel himself and that he was able to take and then to uh, receive the interpretation of them to some degree and leave them inscripturated for people to have later on. 
Um, that's helpful for remembering the order of the book, but there's a little bit more to it than that. And uh, we've talked about this before, but I want to just reiterate this again, that if you want what I think is a more helpful understanding of the overview of the book, and we'll see why this matters here in a moment, um, it's actually best broken down into three main parts, starting with chapter one as an introduction and a setting to the book. Chapters 2 through 7, which is an Aramaic section and in the Aramaic language in the original about the Gentile kingdoms. And then a return to the Hebrew language for the last section of chapters 8 through 12, which focuses on the nation of Israel. And so those three parts are how we're going to break down the structure of this as we review and go over what's there. Now, so I want to begin in the uh, introduction, the historical setting in chapter 1. So we'll just hit some, uh, some key verses along the way and think about how we got here and what the takeaways are. Um, the first thing that happens in chapter 1 is Nebuchadnezzar captures Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar uh, captures Jerusalem. In verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. How did we get here to this point where in the year 605, Nebuchadnezzar is able to actually overcome God's people and to take the stuff out of the temple of the living God and to take it back to his own land and to blaspheme in such a way as to actually put these objects in his own temple, his own so-called God's temple in defiance of the living God? How did we reach this point? Well, you have, of course, things that happen from the beginning of time. You have the creation of the world, Adam and Eve falling into sin, rebe rebelling against God, rejecting God's command not to eat from this one particular tree, from the fruit of that tree. Then God saw that man was increasing in his wickedness and ultimately as man spread on the earth, he was sinful from his birth and the flood came and destroyed all of them except for eight people, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And God in a sense started over. He made a covenant with those people that he would never flood the earth again and with all their descendants after them and with every living creature that came upon the face of the earth that would ever live after that, that he would not destroy the earth by the flood again, uh, by a flood again just because of their sin after this man decided that he was going to make a name for himself by building a tower to heaven at Babel and God foiled that plan spread them out into the nations and said I'm going to do things my way and I'm going to pick who actually has a name and I'm going to pick the way to do this and he called out for himself one man Abraham who would be the father of many nations and it was through Abraham that he would bless all the families of the earth, according to Genesis chapter 12. He promised to give him great numbers of descendants. He promised to give him a land that would be his possession and the possession of those descendants. And he promised to bless them and to bless the nations through those descendants. Abraham is called, but his descendants are promised that they would suffer for 400 years in Egypt, which is exactly what happened. God rescued them from Egypt, from the hand of Pharaoh, brought them out into the land of the promised land after a time in the wilderness where he gave them the Mosaic covenant, the law of God. 
They conquered the land, but they never fully actually took it over the way that they were supposed to. And they never eradicated all of the idolaters from the land so that they became a thorn in their side. And they went and worshipped other gods, the gods of the nations around them and the gods of the nations that were still dwelling in the land that they were supposed to have. And God graciously raised up for them judges time and again to rescue them, but it was never settled, never peaceful for an extended permanent period of time. Eventually, Israel cried out for a king like the nations around them. God granted this request that he had known all along was going to take place and even made some provision for. He was displeased because they were rejecting him from being king over him. But ultimately, he made sure that he would be the one that ruled through that king. Because after Saul was rejected, David uh, became the man that God appointed because he was seeking out a man after his own heart to rule. Even David himself was not fully faithful to the Lord in that, nor his son Solomon, and the kingdom was divided into the northern ten tribes of Israel and the southern two tribes of Judah. Well, eventually in 722 B.C., the northern tribes, which never followed faithfully after the Lord after that, uh, were taken into exile to Assyria to the north. And then over a 100 years later, eventually Judah, which had a few periods of following the Lord faithfully to some degree, a few good kings, eventually they were taken captive after many, many warnings, many, many threats, many, many gracious calls by the prophets to repent. They were taken captive into Babylon. This is where Daniel and his friends find himself. 605 BC was the first Babylonian exile. The last events in the book of Daniel take place just over 70 years later after The kingdom of Medo-Persia, soon to become known just as Persia, uh, conquered Babylon. And the rebuilding work of the first Jews to return to Israel after the 70 years of exile had started and then been halted by their local opponents. All the historical events of this book take place after chapter 1 verse 2. All of them take place in the land of Babylon to which Judah had been exiled. The prophetic events not only cover those times, but also all the way into the distant future, even to a time beyond our own selves today. There are still promises outstanding that have not yet been fulfilled. There are prophecies that were given that have not yet been fulfilled. There were promises at the time that Daniel was taken captive along with his friends. In particular, a promise that after 70 years in Jeremiah 25, 11, that they would return to the land. And it is Daniel that... Uh, he catches that promise, he reads through the books of Jeremiah and he sees that promise and he prays in light of that in chapter 9 as we'll see here in just a few moments. So this is the background, this is how we got there. Daniel uh, is captured along with many of the, the nobles, the young uh, royal family from, uh, from Judah and he's taken into exile in Babylon where he evidently will stay for the rest of his life. Now, while he is there, he found great success. Daniel and his friends, according to chapter 1, succeed in Babylon. They succeed in Babylon. You can see in verses 3 and 4, the king ordered uh, Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youth in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. 
We read in chapter 1 about Daniel and his friends' refusal to defile themselves with the king's food. They would not eat it. And they sought a way to have permission to eat other foods that would not force them to defile themselves for 10 days. And to prove out whether they actually would be better off that way. And as it turns out, God graciously blessed them. He gave them favor in the sight of the official. He then gave them favor by making their bodies in better shape after the 10 days. And they were enabled to continue this. And Daniel and his friends then went through the remainder of this time and eventually were tested. And as we read at the beginning of the message today, they found and proved themselves better than anyone else among all of the king's wise men. This uh, just right up front gives us some lessons that God sometimes uses the worst of events to get us into the place where he wants us to serve him. We don't necessarily know exactly why. When things go badly, we can't look at it and say, well, God must want to exalt me in the exact same way as Daniel and his friends. It doesn't mean we'll have that exact kind of role or even some of the miraculous knowledge that they seem to have. Uh, But it does indicate for us that God can use these things to put us exactly where he wants us. And when we're in circumstances that are difficult and even places where we literally don't want to be, whether geographically or circumstantially, that we are still faithfully to serve God in an uncompromising way. Sometimes life is prosperous and sometimes it's not. Daniel never got to go home. But nonetheless... We are called to be faithful to God and we're called to serve him wherever we are. And we see the great ability that we have to do this even when we wouldn't have picked the circumstances. Daniel would never have chosen to go to Babylon. And yet how greatly he was used in the lives of not only these friends of his and even the kings and even the other people whose lives were spared because he was able to give a dream's interpretation. But also even everybody who reads and believes the scripture down to this very day, including us in this room this morning. Um, There is another lesson here, of course, that uh, Daniel and his friends show that we should take a stand on biblical issues when we are being called to compromise, no matter what. Whether or not it's going to cost us something, we need to be faithful and uncompromising, just as Daniel and his friends refused to defile themselves with the king's food. So this is chapter 1. Uh, the historical setting, and we find that Daniel is taken captive along with much of Jerusalem, and then his friends, he and his friends succeed in Babylon. We then get into the next section, which we will refer to as the kingdoms of the Gentiles and the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of the Gentiles and the kingdom of God. And the Gentiles, of course, is just another word to refer to the nations in particular as distinct from Israel. So when you hear the word Gentile, this is just talking about someone from among the nations uh, who is not a Jew. So the kingdoms of the Gentiles and the kingdom of God. And there is at the same time both an adversarial relationship between the kingdoms of the Gentiles and the kingdom of God and a subservient relationship. God's kingdom rules in the absolute sense of his universal kingdom over all the kingdoms of the earth. And that's a theme that we see over and over again uh, throughout these chapters. So first of all, just keep that in mind that God's universal kingdom rules over the Gentile kingdoms. Um, We find this, for example, in chapter 2, verse 21. It is he who removes kings and establishes kings. Uh, We find... At the end of, uh, we find at the end of chapter 4, 
or rather the beginning of chapter 4, verse 3. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven. Among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is simply to say that even though the kingdoms of the nations do not intend to serve God faithfully for the most part, God nonetheless rules over them and his kingdom in that sense rules over everything always, all the time. So there is this subservient relationship of the kingdoms of the Gentiles to the kingdom of God. But there is also this adversarial relationship where at the end of the day, on earth in practical terms, only one or the other can be in charge. And it is through a number of visions that are given, in particular in chapter 2 and chapter 7, that we find Daniel revealing to us that God's kingdom on earth will actually replace, it will remove and replace the kingdoms of man. It will take them over. It will uh, make a situation such as the book of Revelation describes where it says the kingdoms of this world have become what? The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. This is the way that things are going to go. So one day, God's kingdom not only will rule in the the abstract and even sovereign and providential sense, but in the actual on earth, replacing all the other kingdoms as the dominant force sense. Now, these chapters, verses 2 through 7, are intended to be a unit. Uh, You say, how do you know this? Well, this is the only place where you have a major section of Scripture that is given in the language, uh, the Aramaic language. The New Testament is written in Greek. Of course, there are little phrases and sentences here and there that are in another language for various reasons. But the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, except for chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. And it's very intentional that this is done. This would have been the language, the primary language of the nations rooted out of Babylon at that point. Um, There is a deliberate focus outside the nation of Israel, yet with a message for the nation of Israel while they're in exile among those nations. Uh, So there uh, there is a language reason that these are intended to be a unit. Also, there is a structural reason that we'll see as we walk through this as well that, uh, that is going to show up very clearly. So we'll begin to walk through this now. The first, uh, first chapter here in chapters 2 through 7 is, of course, chapter 2. And there's a very long title for this. Uh, God gives a dream with a vision about the succession of, how many? Four Gentile kingdoms, which are ultimately replaced by God's kingdom. Again, God gives a dream with a vision about the succession of four Gentile kingdoms, which are ultimately replaced by God's kingdom. We find this in chapter 2. The dream comes to Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Uh, He doesn't know what the dream is. He calls everybody in. Nobody can explain what it is. They say, hey, king, just tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And he says, no, I don't believe you. You need to tell me what the dream is first and then I'll believe you when you tell me the interpretation. Eventually, uh, Daniel hears about it when they're about to kill all the wise men because of Nebuchadnezzar's rage. He prays to God and verse 19 says, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. God blesses and thanks him. He goes before the king and he tells him God has given him the revelation of this dream. Um, 
Daniel gives the dream and its interpretation. Starting in verse 31, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. It struck the statue on its feet and iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. He reveals that this is four kingdoms that will come in order. We know historically that these kingdoms turn out to be the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome with... The kingdom of God stepping in at the end. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. And that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So this is a message about the kingdom of God replacing this succession of four Gentile kingdoms who would be the main ones to rule in the world and in particular over the nation of Israel. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, God sends an angel to miraculously deliver his servants, Daniel's friends, who were being attacked for their exclusive worship of the one true God. He was delivering his servants, Daniel's friends, who were being attacked for their exclusive worship of the one true God. What were they supposed to worship in chapter 3? Nebuchadnezzar built a great statue, an image of gold, verse 1 says, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He gathered all the leaders of the people together and he says when the music plays and he lists all the different instruments, this and this and this and this and this, when this happens, you need to all bow down and worship this image that I have made. And eventually some of the Chaldeans, verse 8, came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They said there are a few of them that aren't bowing down when the music plays. And Nebuchadnezzar calls them in Verse 14, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? He gives them another chance. Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Those, as we call them today, are fighting words. And he decides, uh, the, the three men say, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see here an understanding of two things at the same time. God is able to deliver you from persecution and attacks at the hands of people who oppose God. And we are to trust and be uncompromising even if he chooses not to. We're to be faithful to him even if he decides that our lot in this life is to suffer 
for the sake of our worship of God. So we say God is able if he wants to, but we entrust ourselves into his hands by being willing to suffer even if he chooses to do otherwise. And God did send this messenger. It's not entirely clear who this fourth person was who was in the furnace with them. Some would even say it might have been a Christ or pre-incarnate form of Christ in some way. It looks like a, a son of the gods is what it says. But some type of angelic messenger that came and was with them when God protected them from being delivered or from being destroyed by the fire. On to chapter 4. Chapter 4, God humbles a ruler who walks in pride, that is, Nebuchadnezzar. God humbles a ruler who walks in pride, taking away his sovereignty immediately. He takes away his sovereignty immediately. He gives a vision of a tree. And uh, this tree is large, verse 11, became strong. Its height reached to the sky. Uh, It's visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant. In it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all living creatures fed themselves from it. But then, verse 14, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage. Scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. This tree is being destroyed. Let leave the stump with its roots in the ground but with a band of iron and bronze around it. In the new grass of the field, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. And let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is the command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. So this dream is revealed. Daniel says, this is bad news, king. This is going to happen to you. And uh, for a time, it held off. And yet later on, verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal uh, the palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you'll be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most highest ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So he had to learn a very hard lesson. And he basically was like cattle for the next seven years until God graciously restored him. God humbled this ruler, taking away his sovereignty. Well, now we go backwards. Now we go backwards. Chapter 5, God humbles a ruler who walks in pride. Does this sound familiar? God humbles a ruler who walks in pride, taking away his sovereignty immediately. Who is this ruler? Belshazzar. Not Nebuchadnezzar, but his descendant and his successor as king. Not his immediate successor, but a later successor as king, Belshazzar. And what does he do? Well, in chapter 5, he has this great feast, and he calls in all the nobles and everyone, and he says, go get all those vessels of the house of Yahweh, the house of the Lord, and let's bring them in and let's drink out of them and have a feast. Complete defiance of the living God. And what happens? Well, a hand appears... 
and begins writing on the wall. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. The king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. Nobody knew what it meant. And so they call in Daniel and Daniel says, um, you, uh, you remember what happened to your ancestor, to your father, Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 18, most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur with which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whoever he wished, he killed. Whoever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. And he was driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beasts. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grassy like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets it over it whomever he wishes. So this is what he learned. But look, verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. And so he is weighed, measured, and found wanting. And he, that very night, verse 30, was slain. And the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians comes in and takes over the Babylonian kingdom. And they are now in charge. Uh, So he dies that very night. He is humbled. His sovereignty is taken away. And in this sense, he is not humbled in his spirit. He gets humbled by God, humiliated even. We back up a little bit more. We go to chapter 6. In chapter 6, we find... God sends an angel to miraculously deliver his servant, this time not the three of them, but Daniel, who was being attacked for his exclusive worship of the one true God. Daniel was one of 120 satraps set over the kingdom, actually three commissioners over even them. Verse 2 says Daniel was one of them. He's distinguishing himself. They get jealous. They say, we can't attack Daniel on any grounds except this. We know he's going to be faithful to his God. So let's get the king to pass a law where no one can pray to any God other than the king because then that will guarantee that Daniel runs afoul of the law because we know he's going to be doing this. Sure enough, they pass the law. It is sealed as the law of the Medes and the Persians. And uh, Daniel is, of course... um, Continuing to do what he did. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So they found him there. They brought him before the king. The king is grieved. He tries to get Daniel out of trouble. But the law is the law and he can't do anything about it. So they throw Daniel into the lion's den. And... Verse 16, the king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. 
A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of the nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting and no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lion's? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. The punishment that goes on the family of the people, on the, on the men and the, their families who plotted this. God sent this angel to deliver Daniel. Daniel was worshiping one God. And people tried to get him to do otherwise. And he refused to compromise. And in this case, once again, God protected him in light of his exclusive worship. We back up as we move forward one step to chapter 7. God gives a dream with a vision about the succession of four Gentile kingdoms, just as in chapter 2 which are ultimately replaced by God's kingdom and, in this case, God's ruler. This is what is added. Now, as I mentioned before, chapter 7 through 12, the four visions are given directly to Daniel as opposed to historical accounts of other people getting the vision and Daniel interpreting it or just other events that don't involve a vision. Uh, The dream is given directly to Daniel. And chapter 7 talks about four different beasts as opposed to four parts of a statue. And these four different beasts are ultimately knocked out of the way by God judging and then giving the kingdom to someone else. Verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. His wheels were a burning fire. The river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, this is from the fourth kingdom, was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Does that language sound familiar? Well, the language of this everlasting kingdom and dominion is language that's already been spoken of as that which belongs to God. What we have here is this one like a son of man who also is going to be the divine ruler over all the nations. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself who referred to himself in the gospel accounts as the son of man who would be coming on the right hand of the clouds of heaven in great glory. A clear claim to be the one that this is uh, happening with, that this is going to be fulfilled by. So we have, in addition to God's kingdom, 
removing and taking over the other kingdoms of the world, one day what we have not only is that God will not just do that in general, but that his king, his ruler, will be the one who makes all that happen. In addition to this, we have in chapter 7 the uh, ultimate final ruler from the human kingdoms, the little horn that was mentioned in verse 8, another horn, a little one. He's speaking great boasts. Uh, He attacks the saints before the kingdom of God comes, right before Verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations in times and law and they'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This antichrist, this final ruler who would be worshipped as God and many people will, unfortunately, for a time. He is mentioned here as well as through many other places in the second half of the book. But Christ will come and will judge him and the kingdom of God will be given to him and to his saints and it will rule upon this earth. You say, why is this in this way, this structure here where it kind of goes forward and then backward? Uh, this is a common literary structure in certain ancient cultures known as a chiasm, coming from the Greek letter chi or key, uh, where it starts here on one side. It's kind of like an X, but it goes in toward the middle and then it comes back out. And uh, as opposed to the end being the culmination of these things or some other way of structuring these things liter- uh, in literary terms, uh, what generally this refers to is that the, the most emph- or emphasized or emphatic point is going to be right in the middle and the, the key message is going to be there. And I think that's what's going on here as well in the book of Daniel. You have this narrowing from chapters 2 and 7 and then 3 and 6 and right in the middle the message to the Gentile kingdoms is in chapters 4 and 5 which has to do with the need of human rulers and kingdoms to humble themselves before the God who is over all of them. The God of heaven is the one who is in charge. He's the one who bestows rule and authority. He's the one who gives kings their power. He's the one who lifts people up and brings them down. Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson eventually. Belshazzar did not. But this is the message to the kings of the earth. And we find this As I mentioned when we went through this originally, but we find this in Psalm chapter 2. Turn over there with me, if you would, to Psalm 2. And we'll see here uh, a call to take this attitude and to adopt this attitude. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar, the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let's tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the cry of all of the nations. This is the cry of all the peoples of the earth. They don't want God to rule them. They say God is shackling us. He is he's keeping us imprisoned. He won't let us do what we want. Let's get rid of him. And it's the Lord and his anointed king, his ruler, whoever that may be at that given time, At the time when the Psalms were written, this would have been uh, whatever king was in power at that point. At the time of the kingdom of God taking over, that will be the anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. Of course, God is not phased by this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. He's there. What are you going to do about it? And then he speaks. This king, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. We read in the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ is the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And uh, you can see why when Satan tempts him to have all the nations of the earth, that the temptation would have some sticking point because he actually was the rightful heir of all the kingdoms of the earth. The issue is it's just not that you worship Satan to get them. It's that you ask God and he will give them. And Jesus trusted this promise and said, I will ask of God and he will give me these at the time when he says. So what's the uh, human response? The response of human kings. Now therefore, verse 10, now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Humble yourself before him. Don't exalt yourself against the God of heaven. How many of our rulers around the world today completely just ignore this kind of warning? They don't care. They want to do things their way. They're in power because they want to do things their way in many cases. Or when they get there, they aren't concerned about humbling themselves before the living God. This is a warning. And of course, we who are in Christ have heeded the warning. And he gives a promise at the end of the psalm. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the safe spot. It's not by getting away from him in some way. And it's not by becoming super powerful to rule over every man and make yourself safe from them. The way you do it is by taking refuge in God. And this is what everyone who has come to trust in Christ has done. And so the message is, kings, humble yourself under the hand of God. God's kingdom is one day going to rule. You don't want to be on the wrong side of him. Well, he returns then in chapters 8 through 12 to an important subject for Daniel, which is uh, his plans for the, nations of, the nation of Israel, the future of Israel in particular. And there are three visions that outline this. These also could be in a similar form um, with sort of mirrored messages in chapter 8 and chapter, uh, chapters 10 through 12 and the, the key in the middle. But we'll just keep it simple and put it in these, uh, these three major visions. First of all, chapter 8, Israel's domination by Persia. And Greece, even though the nations of the world are ruling, this doesn't mean that God is no longer in charge. And even though Israel is still going to continue to suffer and to be ruled by others for a long period of time, this doesn't mean God's promises have failed. And so in chapter 8, we have a vision about the kingdom of Persia, which was then in power. We have a, a vision, uh, uh, it's about the kingdom of Greece as well that follows. And then one particular ruler who will come out of the division of the Greek kingdom, the Greek empire, named Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes, who will harshly treat Israel and yet he himself ultimately will be broken. His power will be broken. Um, this vision is brought by the angel Gabriel to Daniel. So Israel's domination by Persia and Greece is what chapter 8 is about. Chapter 9 covers 70 weeks or 77s, uh, what we find as 70 sets of 7 years leading to Israel's restoration. The first 19 verses have to do with Daniel's prayer where he confesses Israel's sin. He begs God to fulfill his promise 
that Jeremiah gave in Jeremiah 25:11 that they would be returned to the land after 70 years of exile. He saw that and he prayed in light of that. And he asked God to be gracious to Israel the people, to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple of God, which is all called by his name. And God answers and once again sends Gabriel to Daniel and he outlines that there will be 70 weeks for all of this to take place. Verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. And so he's dealing with the people, he's dealing with the city, he's dealing with the temple, the most holy place in particular. And he says everything is going to be done in that period of time. Now, as we saw there, there would be a period of uh, 483 years leading up to the Messiah, uh, the 62 and 7 weeks or 7 and 62 weeks. I argued at that point when we were going through this, and you can go back and listen if you'd like, that the 7 year of the 70th week is still yet to come, which backs up against the coming of Jesus Christ. This one week that's described in verse 27 as largely dominated by Antichrist who breaks a covenant in the middle of that seven-year period and then ultimately is destroyed uh, when the Lord returns. But 70 weeks leading to Israel's restoration. All the prophecy, all the visions, everything that God has ever and will ever say about them is going to be brought to pass during that time. Then, Chapters 10 through 12, which we've just recently finished, describe Israel's future through the time of the end. Israel's future through the time of the end. Chapter 10, uh, there's an introduction where Daniel receives a vision, a visit really, with a vision. Chapter 11 through verse 3 of chapter 12 describes predictions about the future, all of which have come to pass except for a few at the end of chapter 11 and then the first three verses of chapter 12 and then some closing matters for the rest of chapter 12. What do we take away from all of this? Let me just give you a couple of truths about a number of different things here. Theological and practical takeaways. Truths about God. Truths about God. And there are, of course, many more that we could cover. But truths about God. First of all, God fulfills all his promises. He fulfills all his promises. He sent Israel to exile in accordance with his threat. He brought them back from exile when he said that he would. God uses prayer to fulfill his promises. Daniel prayed that God would do this. But nonetheless, God fulfills his promises. God does literally whatever he wants. Chapter 4 verse 35 tells us he does whatever he wants. Um, all God's works are true and his ways are just. Chapter 4, verse 37, everything he does is true and right. He never does anything wrong. Again, much more we could say, but the book makes these things very clear. He keeps his promises, he does whatever he wants, and everything he does is true and right. Truths about Christ, about Christ. Chapter 9, verse 26 tells us that he is going to be cut off. The Messiah, the anointed one, will be killed. This was predicted in the Old Testament, and yet somehow... The Jews of Jesus' day seem to miss that idea of his sufferings. And then he is one day coming to reign over all the kingdoms of the earth. He will rule all the kingdoms of the earth. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Truths about angels. About angels. Um, they are used by God in various capacities. To worship him. To rescue people to bring messages. 
uh, to protect nations from others. According to chapter 10 and 11 and 12, they're used by God in various capacities. And uh, they're very powerful. And they're doing things behind the scenes that we may not always be aware of. We can learn certain things, but we know that things are going on and God is using them to bring about his purposes. Uh, Truths about rulers and kingdoms, about rulers and kingdoms. As I've already mentioned, human rulers are subject to God even if they don't recognize it. Even if they don't recognize it. Uh, This is what the problem was with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. They didn't recognize that and they needed to. So everyone needs to, uh, to get this message. That's why... Nebuchadnezzar wrote the decree in chapter 4. He says in verse 2, It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. And he says his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. God is the one who possesses all authority and he gives it to who he wants. 4.32, chapter 4 verse 32 tells us he gives authority to whomever he desires. And then truths about the believer's life, about the believer's life. As we've already mentioned, God is worthy of being worshipped no matter what it costs. God is able to deliver from anyone no matter how powerful. And we should be uncompromising in the face of any opposition because God is worthy of it. Finally, uh, some truths about God's plans First of all, for Israel, even while Israel is under Gentile geopolitical domination, God is still sovereignly ruling. He has not abandoned his promises to them. He still intends to do everything that he has said. But maybe more directly for all believers, God's plans are often surprising and not the things that we would pick. And yet he always keeps his promises. He always does what he says that he will do. And if we take away anything from Daniel, then... It ought to be really just that, understanding that God is in charge and he does what he wants to do. He always keeps his word and he is able to do what he promises because he is all powerful. And uh, this is a God that is worth our serving faithfully and uncompromisingly. And he is a God that Daniel shows us is worthy of all worship. I hope that as we uh, leave this book, we don't forget these things. I hope that you will take these away and remember to worship and to serve the God of heaven and to do so because we've studied this book even more faithfully and in an even more uncompromising way. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for sending these amazing messages and truths. Thank you for the godly example that he provides for us. And uh, thank you that you are kind and gracious to your people. Help us to trust you when we don't know what exactly you're doing in any given moment, that you are working these things for our good. God, help us to worship you with all our heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.